0: been in a sermon series called One Way Jesus, and we uh, have been looking at uh, who Jesus is and then the statements that he's made about himself. And we began with a question that we'll actually end the series with later on today, but it was the question that Jesus asked his disciples of who do they say he is. He invited them to a point of decision about who he was and about how they were going to relate to him. and. We'll get to that at the end of the message as well, but as we began the series, we we looked at that Matthew chapter 16, we looked at that conversation and kind of the challenges that that poses with the uh, culture of relativism that you and I live in, where everybody kind of has an idea of kind of what they think truth is and who they think Jesus is, and as long as you're not hurting anybody, everybody's ideas are fine, is kind of the way that things approached. But as we've looked through the series, Jesus makes some very specific, very intentional statements about who he is and what that means as a result. And in the Gospel of John, they're called the I am statements. There's seven of them. We've gone through each one week to week where Jesus has said, I am this. I am this. And it began with, I am the bread of life. And what I want to point out to you is that he's using a specific type of language, a specific type of, of verbiage in that exchange. It's something that's called a metaphor. You guys remember, I'm going to take you back to grade school, take you back to middle school, maybe to high school, maybe remedial English for those of you who are a little slower into college, right? But the idea of, of metaphor is uh, kind of a comparison or assertion of, of identifying with a specific type of thing. There's actually the language uh, that is used. You can do a simile or a metaphor, right? A simile is like or as. Do you guys remember that? Uh, And then a metaphor is something is. Like a a good example of a simile, if you think about Muhammad Ali, when he would talk about himself as a boxer, he would say, I float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, right? Some of you guys are, are old school enough to be kinda rolling with that. He didn't say, hey, I am a butterfly right? He's like, I'm like a butterfly. I'm light on my feet. I'm ducking and swerving, and I'm going to sting you like a bee. Then there's somebody like Babe Ruth. He's another really famous uh, uh, baseball player, Hall of Famer from back in the day. Had a number of different nicknames. Maybe you would not have known that as a baseball fan, but maybe you watched the movie Sandlot, right? And you would know that Babe Ruth was known as the Sultan of Swat, Right, and that's a metaphor, that's a statement about who he was and about how he was going to go about being a baseball player. Uh, the Sultan of Swat, uh, when I was in college, I had a beautiful, long, flowing mane of hair. I've shared that picture with you a few times because everybody just assumes I'm making that up. I am not. It was beautiful. <laughs> Parts of our past really are beautiful, and then they are just in the past, right? But one of, one of my nicknames, it was a metaphor, I was referred to as the hair farmer, and now I look like a dry land farmer that's gone through a drought, right? I mean, you know, the crop has been decimated by something or another. Uh, but that's the, that's the use of metaphors, OK? And what metaphors do is they give you a frame or a lens for viewing something so that you have a deeper understanding. It helps you connect abstract thought to it. But at the same time, every lens creates kind of some limitation. If you were to kind of study out the use of this, a metaphor is a way of seeing very clearly, but then also not seeing at the exact same time. And it's that, it's that technique, it's that usage that Jesus employs when he starts talking about who he is. It's to, it's to narrow in on a truth about him with very, very precise clarity. So when he says, I am the bread of life, it narrows in, and he makes it very clear that the things that in your soul that would be hungry and thirsty, that they will never be satisfied in something other than him. But he is not only the bread of life, and he certainly is not a loaf of bread that has life, right? It's just a, a, a use that he has. And so the I am statements that he is making are all making use or employing metaphor for us to understand, and I just wanna remind you of the things that Jesus said they will be up on the screen as we just think about this, okay? He said that I am the bread of life, right? Nothing else is gonna satisfy the hunger or the thirst of your heart, mind, and soul apart from him. I am the light of the world. And in that, he's making a declaration that apart from him that we walk in darkness. I am the door or the gate, that that is the way into the plans, purposes, and promises that God has for your life. And if you try to go another route, you can't actually get To that place. He says, I am the good shepherd. That he is the one that invites and he is the one that leads, that he is the one that cares for. And just as a side note, there is only one good shepherd. Every other would be somebody who would drive you. It's a taskmaster, it was somebody from behind that would whip and push and accuse. In fact, in scripture, Satan is referred to as the accuser of the followers of Jesus. But he is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life that apart from him, there's no new life that comes out of brokenness. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the one very true uh, direction that you can go in to find those things. He is the true vine that apart from him, your life la- your life will lack fruitfulness it's going to lack vitality and in fact even in that context when he uses that that language he says i am the true vine and he says apart from me you can do nothing nothing that you could do or accomplish has any actual lasting or eternal value outside of the person of jesus and so he uses these metaphors for us to kind of narrow in on kind of who he is they're just dis- they're uh, statements and declarations of his identity And then there's this invitation or maybe even a challenge for us as to whether or not we're going to agree with that and then whether we're going to align the way that we live our life with that truth. And so that's the tension that's always being presented there. And before we move on this morning, I want to ask you just a series of questions. Maybe you're a note taker and you could write something down in response to this. But of those statements, of those metaphors that he uses to help us understand who he is and what he's come to do, which of those have been an encouragement to you in this series? Those of you who have maybe been here through the whole, or maybe you've dip- dipped in on a couple parts, or you've kind of tried to catch up online. Like, wh- which ones are ones that have kind of grabbed your attention? Which ones would be ones that have been like an, an encouragement to you. Maybe it was the idea that he was the bread of life and that Jesus will bring satisfaction. Maybe he's the one who's the light of the world and he's going to bring clarity to decisions that you need to make. What would be an encouragement? Maybe another question would be what was a good reminder was a good reminder for, for you and, and maybe caused you to pause or to think or to maybe change your posture in relation to, the G, to Jesus? I, re, I remember when Pastor Mark was speaking about Jesus being the gate or the door and the challenge of am I going to follow Jesus into the things that God has for me or if I'm going to try to kind of hop the wall and find my own way to get what I That was a good reminder for me to make sure that I'm not trying in my own strength or effort to get or grab or grasp, but that I would just truthfully and uh, honorably follow Jesus into the things that he has for me. And then maybe another question for you would be, which of these have challenged you? Which one's kind of challenged your thoughts or your actions? Maybe there was one on on a particular week that was like, "Mm, I don't really, I don't really like that one. That one's a little bit too strong for me. Maybe the way, the truth, and the life, the idea that Jesus is the way and not one of many ways, maybe that was challenging for you. Maybe that was one of those things where you're like, yes, I affirm that and I want to do that, but I kind of want to do my own thing. I want to go my own highways and byways and figure it out my, what, my, myself. I want to keep my options open. Maybe that was something that would be challenging for you. And so maybe some of these have been encouragement, some of them reminders, maybe some of them have been challenges. This morning, we're going to move away from a statement of metaphor to a definitive statement that Jesus makes that is uh, a point of decision for everyone. In fact, in all of these, there's room for us to kind of waffle a little bit. Like if, if Jesus is the bread of life and man, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty in my soul and I come to Jesus and then I begin, oh man, I'm satisfied. I'm kind of pumped up and I can be like, okay, I'll take it from here, Jesus, right? Not you, but like the nine o'clock service, right? It's rampant with people like that, right? We, you know, we, we need clarity for our decisions and we come to Jesus and we're like, we need, I need you to be the light of the world. I need you to show me. I need you to teach me. I need you to lead me. And then it's like, okay, I got my footing. I got my bearings. Okay, I can take it from here, Jesus. That he is the way and the only way and we come and then we kind of get our life kind of in order and then we're going to kind of try it our way again. We have a tendency to kind of move back and forth in that because there's a little bit of space that we feel afforded to us because of the use of metaphor. But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to turn our attention to something even more challenging, because as encouraging, as challenging, and as even provocative as those metaphoric statements are that Jesus makes, he makes another statement that over and above the rest elicited such a visceral response from his hearers because it leaves no room for debate. It leaves no room for kind of middle of the road, waffling back and forth. It's a statement that he makes that it is a dividing line. It is a point of decision, and it's one that every person is called to at some point. And it's a decision that is made in regards to eternity and salvation, but it's also a decision that is made daily in the way that I'm going to live and align the activity of my life with the things of God. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, I want to invite you to open up your Bible app. Go ahead and raise your word up. Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts, eager hearts, Lord, to hear from you this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, as would be described in your word. That there would be an openness and a receptivity to your word, Lord, that we would not just agree with it in our minds, but that we would take it into our hearts, that it would take root, that it would grow, and it would produce a harvest of righteousness in our lives. Lord, for the places that we would be challenged this morning, let us hear your voice. Let us hear your invitation to life and life abundantly in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If your Bible's open, go ahead and open up to John chapter 8. and We're going to spend all of our time really in in this chapter. And in John chapter 8, we've actually already been here earlier in our series because it's in John chapter 8 that Jesus makes the statement that I am the light of the world. And whoever lives in me or whoever walks with me will never walk in darkness. And so it's in this same chapter that we're going to find ourselves. And in, in John chapter 8, there's some things that we want to know contextually about where we're at. Because it's going to be relevant in just a few minutes. And the first thing is that Jesus and his disciples have gathered to celebrate what is called the Feast of Tabernacles. The feast of tabernacles it was a jewish feast it comes out of the old testament uh, religion and liturgy it's a part of the culture and the tradition and they've all gathered together and they're going to celebrate this feast and so they've gathered together they're all in one place and at the same time kind of through this feast of tabernacle through this week jesus is public he is teaching he's interacting with people there are miracles that are taking place and so all of that is part of the background and the context here, And Jesus ends up in a conversation uh, in, in early on in chapter 8 where he directs them towards that metaphor that he uses of being the light of the world. And he ends up in this engaged conversation with the collective there about who he is and what that means. And as you finish out that little part of the narrative, you'll bump into a verse that says, and many people put their faith or began to put their faith in him at that time. In fact, it reads, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. And so this is kind of this immediate thing that's taken place. There's this conversation where Jesus is using a metaphor to say, this is who I am. And people are moving into that and they're saying, okay, I think I believe that. That makes sense to me. I'm cognitively beginning to agree with this. And those that responded to the message begin a new conversation with Jesus that we're going to pick up right here, and it's to that group that he begins to speak. Now there is a larger group gathered. It's not just kind of those who had begun to put their faith in him. There's still this large gathering and this crowd around him. And so in verse 31, it reads this way. It says, to the Jews who believed him, those are those, the, the ones that just responded to his metaphor of being the light of the world. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So as Jesus begins to talk about who he is and says, I am the light of the world, people are leaning into that, and there is a group of people in that group that are now like, okay, I think I agree with that. And so now he takes them from a place of just being agreeing with them in thought to calling them to action. He's calling them to take a step of faith. And he says, if you are truly my disciple, if you're, if you're really on board, if what you're beginning to lean into is actually something that you are going to follow through with conviction, then you will need to hold to my teaching. And then he goes on from there and he says, you will then know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's at this point that as Jesus calls them away from just being like, yeah, I think I like that idea, to know you're gonna have to do something in your life as a result of that. Your life is gonna have to change. The the way that you live your life is gonna have to align with my teaching and my leading and my direction. It's at that call to action that now all of a sudden he's gonna get a little bit of pushback. And they push back on his statement where he says, that uh, the the um, the the idea of you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And what they jump on is the idea of freedom. And they push back and they basically say we're already free. And what they begin to engage with Jesus in becomes a philosophical and religious argument. Because they're being called to act in faith, but they don't really want to act. They've gotten there in agreement in their head, but as he's calling them to align the life that they're going to live, they begin to push back and they move into more of a discourse or into a conversation or even to a contention that begins to get philosophical and religious. And what they, re, what they end up doing is they begin to enter into a religious debate based on their Jewish heritage and lineage and their Old Testament practice. In fact, when they jump on this idea of freedom, the way that they respond to Jesus is they said, we've always been free. We are in the line of Abraham and we have never been subjugated to oppression is how they're kind of sending that out. Jesus is calling them to spiritual truth. Jesus is calling them to act on their agreed thought, but they're pushing back in a sense of wanting to enter into a religious type of debate. And it's because Jesus pressed them for a decision. He pressed for a decision. And so they push back with debate. Religious, philosophical, and really what they wanna start pushing at, and it's, much, it, it, it's, it's very similar to the culture that we live in. They begin to kind of push on the idea of what the truth is. Because when Jesus invites them to know the truth, and the truth would set them free, they begin to respond philosophically and religiously, and that's not what Jesus is inviting them to consider. He's not inviting them to consider a truth or an ideology or a way to think or a viewpoint of the world. He's inviting them to himself. He is the truth. And that's the problem for them. He is the truth. They want to use a Greco-Roman philosophical framework to couch out their thoughts. They want to talk about related truths our culture has a lot of, of uh, conversations academically and otherwise about relativity and related truth. You live your truth and I'll live my truth. And it's all truth, but it's all little t truth. So there's no real truth. It's just what you believe. And as long as it's good for you, that it's good for you. And that's the water that we swim in. And that's kind of the collective thoughts of our culture, and it's not much different than some of the stuff that Jesus had to deal with at the time, and so they begin to kind of push into those types of things, and they're using a very Jewish type of religious and philosophical framework, but you could substitute almost any earthly mindset, philosophy, and religious structure, and you could come up with the same thing right now. Well, let's talk about truth. He's like, I'm trying to. I am the truth, and so he's pressing them. He's pressing them for a decision and they want to keep their options open he's pressing them to action and they want to kind of keep feeling it out and what happens in the next succession of verses is this conversation that gets uh, increasingly more agitated and and conflict-oriented where at each turn, as Jesus kind of is brushing aside these things and calling them back to a place of having to make a decision, they begin to become a little bit more and more agitated and hostile to the point that then there's an accusation made of Jesus that he is possessed by, the, uh, by demonic forces and that he's looking to somehow undermine the very truth of God. So they're aligning with those types of thoughts and making those types of accusations. All the while, what they're really trying to do is avoid making the decision. Because this decision is not a a kind of a come and go. It's not a like if you feel it, you can kind of try it on. Jesus is, is pushing them to decide. And they begin, again, to use kind of this philosophical, this religious framework to kind of bounce around to it. And then Jesus kind of pushes everything off the table and draws a line, so to speak, and, and, and forces, forces the hand of decision when he makes this statement. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says this. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Right? And depending on how much scripture you know, that, that wouldn't even, it, it wouldn't make any sense at all. If you know anything about scriptural timeline, certainly you'd know that Abraham was Old Testament and he's already been dead and dusted for a long time at this point. So at least in kind of the, the timeline of human history, maybe you know that that kind of sounds off. But it's even more poignant what Jesus is saying here because he's not just saying that I was like before Abraham. And in fact, the NIV, the way that it translates in the Greek, it translates at this idea, before Abraham was born, I am. A better understanding of the language that's being used here is that before Abraham was called into existence, I was already. And it moves even further back to the idea of uh, kind of being born in the flesh or like your earth birthday in in a sense like that, moving further beyond that. Scripture tells us that before you were conceived in your mother's womb, that God already had plans and purposes for your life, that before the earth was formed, that you were already known. And as you build that type of a theological framework back into what Jesus is saying here, he's saying before anything was, I was. And look at their response. It was visceral, it was immediate, it was violent. It says, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. This was a statement of blasphemy. This was like the highest type of blasphemy. They weren't even gonna go to the religious leaders. They weren't gonna kind of go through a religious trial. They just grabbed what they had and they were going to try to stone him. It was immediate. And the reason why it was such a violent, such a visceral and such an immediate response is because he had backed them to a place where they had to decide. There was no other option here. This wasn't, this wasn't space for debate any longer. This is, wasn't kind of like this seat of philosophical discourse. Like they had to decide because what he said was, I am, I am. And that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to us initially. That might not be something that kind of provokes thought in your mind, but for them, it was an incredibly provocative statement because what is being uh, said here has to do with eternal existence. It has to do with eternal identity. In fact, i mentioned that what was happening and what they had gathered for at the time was the Feast of Tabernacle. It was a, a, a way to come and to worship and to celebrate who God was, how Yahweh had impacted the lives of his people. And in the liturgy of worship for the Feast of Tabernacle, that phrase was used, the idea of the I am. It was immediate, it was at the forefront of their mind and they were immediately offended by that thought because the language evokes the picture and evokes the conversation between Moses and God at the burning bush. In Exodus chapter three, Verse 14, as Moses is talking to God and he's being called into his assignment, as he's being called out of the wilderness and into the assignment as the deliverer, as God says, no, I'm sending you, I'm gonna put the words in your mouth, I'm gonna put the power of my spirit on you and you're gonna go and deliver my people, that as Moses is having the conversation with God about, well, who do I say is sending me And, and, and what do I tell them that God's response was, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. That was the language that God spoke of himself out of the burning bush. It's the, if you've ever heard the, the word Yahweh in reference to kind of a name of God, that is what is being spoken here. And it's a, it's a specific type of phrase that has eternal and divine existence mapped into it. It's better understood that I am the one who is. I, I am, I exist, but not in a sense of just in present or temporal time. It's all-encompassing. When it talks about Jesus who was and is and is to come. In Revelation, when it talks about him being the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, it's that type of language. That's all being employed here. And when God in in Exodus three says, I am, he is saying, I am the one who is and all else has its existence out of me. I am, I am. It would be something that would be related to kind of the the being verbs in, in our language. You guys remember any of those parts of speech, right? I've already taught you simile and metaphor. You guys are halfway to your English degree right now. Right, you got adjectives and adverbs and there's nouns. Right, all of those types of things. And there's different types of verbs. There's the helping verbs, do you remember those? Have, has, had, do, does, did, shall, will, should, would, may, might, must, can, could. I still remember that from grade school. But then there's the being verbs. Am, is, are, was, were, be, being, been. And then they actually add a few on the other side of that with like becoming is kind of getting looped into that as well. You guys are all getting bored now and you're like, when's recess? Like, let's go. But what's being employed here, it's being language. It's existence language. And when God uses it in Exodus three, he's making a declaration, I am the one who is, and everything else is because of me. And that's what Jesus is saying. That was the liturgy that was used for the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's what Jesus was saying in that moment to draw their connection to that and to draw their response because he draws a line in the stand with that statement that says, You are going to agree with this or not. There's no debate here. It forced them and pushed them into a place of decision. And he moved them and and kind of coerced the conversation to that point because that's always the point. That's always the question. We can try to back up to the metaphors that Jesus uses and he's the bread of life and he's the resurrection and the life and he's the good shepherd and we can kind of try to relate to him in part in just our area of need and then dip out to kind of live our lives our own way or to do our own thing or to struggle on our own until we're broken or desperate enough to get back to him. But this statement doesn't leave that type of wiggle room. He says, I am, take it or leave it, I am. I am the one, the only one and apart from me, there's no one. I am. And it presses. It presses for decision. And it's at that point that everybody has to respond one way or another. I am. I'm the one who exists. I was and is and is to come. I've heard it said, and I want to just sidebar for just a moment. Like I've, I've, I've heard it said as an encouraging thing right, that when Jesus speaks of himself that he's the great I am, not the great I was, right, because he's not done, he's not finished, he's still moving today, and he's going to lead you into a promised future, and I think that that's helpful, and I think that that's healthy, and it can be encouraging to a point, but listen, he, he is the I was as well, He still was before you agreed with it. He still was before you received salvation. He still was when you lived your life in a way where you were flipping him off and living your life on your own strength and a rampant rebellion against him. He still was. He didn't become because you thought it or you agreed with it or you said, okay, that's going to be good for my life now. He already was. The thing that changes is not him. The thing that changes is you and I in agreement with that capital T truth or not. It's such a good reminder to know that when you were broken, he still was, and he was there, and he was present, and you may not have experienced any of that because of the hardness of your heart and the divorce of relationship that you lived in relation to him, but he still was, and he was good, and he was able, and he was kind, and he was for you. All of that was true when it wasn't your experience because you were far from him. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't change. He, he was and is and is to come. There's great hope in knowing that God still was, even before you were. There's even more hope that He is today for what you're wrestling with and what you're currently walking through. And oh man, what an encouragement to know that He's already tomorrow. There's nothing that you'll face or that you'll walk through that He hasn't already gone before. But all of that draws us to this place where we have to make a decision. One way. One way. He's the bread of life or there is no life. He is the light or there is darkness. He is the good shepherd or there is no shepherd. Like the language that he uses to give us the metaphor draws us to a place where we can appreciate him deeply in that area of need and in that relational understanding. But ultimately it all funnels to the statement that he is. He is. He is whether you like it or not. He is whether you agree with it or not. He is whether you hope or don't. He is whether you act or not. He, like he is. And there's great freedom in that truth. And so when Jesus steers the conversation to this statement, it's not included as the I am statements in John because he's not declaring something about himself for us to metaphorically recognize or understand. He makes a definitive statement about who he is and calls us to decide. And for you and I, it's the the same thing a decision to be made in Matthew chapter 16 verse 15 after Jesus talks to his disciples about, what are people saying about me? And there was all kinds of thoughts and theories, all types of relative ideas and ideologies, all types of philosophical and religious frameworks that were being used to somehow come to a conclusion. And all of that known, all of that said, and you can be very learned and you can work in that world and you can kind of grasp all the nuance of that, but ultimately it comes to the decision that Jesus presses each of his disciples for in the next verses where he says, but what about you who do you say i am and ultimately this whole series brings us back to where we started and it's this question who, who do you say he is and his identity isn't determined by your conclusion he's not threatened by your thoughts or what your conclusions would be i'm not either because i know that He's the same yesterday today and forever. I know that he is the God that does not change. But the invitation is whether or not we're going to decide for ourselves that he is the way, the truth, the life, the bread of life, the light of the world, all of those things, or none of those things. And the invitation has eternal significance and consequence, because ultimately it has to do with who is Lord. And am I going to receive salvation? I'm going to walk into that. But it has daily consequence as well. Because each and every day I have to ask myself the same question, who do I say Jesus is? Because it'll change the way that I speak to my spouse, it'll change the way that I interact with my kids, it'll change the way that I work for my employer, even if they're unfair, it'll change the way that I speak about whoever the others are in my life. All of that changes if I answer that question with he is the I am. Because then I'm called back to what Jesus said at the very beginning. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples and then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's a move from just what do I agree with in my mind with how am I going to live my life? And that subtle change sets everything in motion for me to walk into the things that Jesus ultimately wants to offer. And ultimately, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said this, I have come so that they would have real and eternal life, better life than they ever dreamed of. There's no life apart from him. And that's the point that he calls us to decide on. Church family, if you would stand. Worship team, if you would come forward. This morning, rather than um, moving you towards specific action steps, I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to pray over you if you would permit me that. Lord, we come before you and we know that you have drawn us to a place of decision. We're not always comfortable with that, Lord. Most of us, we want to keep our options open. We want to be able to kind of change direction quickly if needed. It gives us a sense or a semblance of control and the ability to somehow orchestrate our own lives. Jesus, it's easier sometimes for us to just relate to you through one of those lenses that when our hearts, our minds, our souls, when we feel starved and emaciated, that we would come to you, that you would be the bread of life and you would, you would sustain us. There's times where we're walking in darkness, we have decisions to make and we can't make sense. There's chaos and disorder in our lives and we're not sure how to respond. Seems to be deception or things going on behind the scenes and we would look to you to be the light Lord, there's times where we're weary, we're broken, we're lost, and we need a good shepherd, somebody to come alongside us and to care for us, to lead us to a place of rest and recovery, to defend us in the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, as we would relate to you through all of those lenses, we get a way of seeing you very clearly, but we get kind of a, a convenient opportunity to put the other parts of who you are and what that means kind of out of thought and out of mind for a moment. And Lord, today as we land on the most provocative statement that you made about who you are, we're not left with that option. We're not afforded that convenience. We have to decide. Is Jesus Lord or not? is he the king of kings and lord of lords or not is he the one way or is there no way and so lord for our hearts today would you draw us to that point of decision and would you call us to faith some of my friends here today may be making a decision to receive salvation to repent of their sins and receive your forgiveness for the very first time. Some of my friends here, Lord, may have been walking with you, followers of you for a long time, but not putting into practice your words, not aligning their life's trajectory or activity with the things that you've said are true. Lord, help us to decide today in this moment, but help us to decide in each deciding moment after that we would submit to your Lordship that we would choose you as the one way. Lord, be the bread of life, be the light of the world, be the gate to the promises of God, be the good shepherd, be the resurrection and the life, be the way, the truth and the life, be the true vine. Lord, be all of those things and more in our church, and in our persons. Lord, I thank you that there's grace for places of kind of wrestling, but you always invite us to decide. And so Lord, even those who would be in that place today, may they feel your grace, may they feel your pleasure and invitation to continue that conversation with you and your spirit to make that decision. Lord, we declare that you are the one way. You are the great I am. That you are the one who was and is and is to come. That you are the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. You are the first and the last. You are King Jesus. And we celebrate that today in your name. Amen. Amen.